Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. My name is Dave Powell and I'm filling in for Aisha this week. Order! Order! Chancellor Philip Hammond got out his red box again last week to let us know how the country's finances are, or aren't, holding up, and what the government's going to do with its money this year. I now call the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Right Honourable Philip Hammond. The headlines were mixed. Growth in the economy is expected to slow down over the next few years, blamed on poor productivity. So today, they revised down the outlook for productivity growth, business investment and GDP growth. And people's incomes and living standards are expected to be hit as a result. But there was a cut to stamp duty for people buying their first house, more investment in the NHS and more money for universal credit to try and sort out some of its problems. And together to build a Britain fit for the future. I commend this statement. Will those things be enough to make our economy fit for the future, as the Chancellor put it? And with Brexit looming, is the government doing enough to deal with the country's economic problems? People's wages and living standards revised down. What sort of strong economy is that? What sort of fit for the future is that? To help me answer those questions, we've got some very special guests this week. First up, Kate Bell, who's the head of economic, economic, economic and social (laughs) affairs. I've been saying economic and economic really differently. Uh, The head of economic and social affairs at the TUC, the Trades Union Congress. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks for having me. And for the first time, oh, this is exciting, <laughs> the new boss, new chief executive of the New Economics Foundation, Miata Farnbele. Welcome to the podcast, Thank Miata. you. Right, none of Aisha's messing about. We're diving straight in this week into the budget. Um, and a first question for both of you. It's all a bit confusing, isn't it? <laughs> the budget is full of information and numbers and announcements and jokes, plenty <laughs> of jokes. Um, so what were the most important things that you guys took away from the budget? So I think for me, the big takeaway is that life is about to get really tough for people. Um, And that's against a backdrop when actually we've seen people's pay packet uh, squeeze for a decade. Um, And the big, big story of the budget is that actually the economic forecast is worse um, and wages are likely to be squeezed until the mid 2020s. For everyday people, that means life is just going to be tough. People who are struggling to pay their bills, struggling to make ends meet life is just going to be tougher. I think that's really right. And I think what we really took away from the budget was that nothing that Philip Hammond really stood up and said was going to make that much difference to those figures. So like Miata said, we calculate that in this budget, as opposed to the last budget, which was actually in March, we've had two budgets this year, <laughs> slightly confusingly, people are now going to be over £800 a year worse off in 2021, even than we thought six months ago. And for all kind of Philip Hammond's jokes, for everything he said, not much of that changed. So it is really, I think, bad news for working people across the economy. So why? Why is growth expected to slow? Can you explain that in a way that I can understand, which means it's got to be quite a simple, quite a simple way? Well, some of this is the change in what the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is the independent body, which kind of checks the government's homework, if you like, it checks the government's forecasts, has decided is going to happen in the economy. So some of this is making predictions, and that's what we're basing those figures on. But they've basically looked at what's going on in the economy over the past five to seven years. As Miata said, we've had 
seven months now in a row of real wages falling following a long 10-year income squeeze. The economy's slowed down, it's growing less quickly than we expected. It's um, growing, I think, the slowest in the G7 this year. What the Office for Budget Responsibility are really saying is, up till now we've been thinking, well, surely good times are just around the corner. Now we don't think we can believe that anymore. Now we've really got to accept that the UK's economic model isn't delivering, it's not delivering growth, it's not delivering wages, and they don't see that getting better anytime soon. That's spot on. <laughs> Succinct and to the point. <laughs> well, so uh, spreadsheet Phil, the Chancellor Philip Hammond, he said, um, no, it's all right. He said it's just, it's just this poor productivity thing. So he said that's the reason the economy is not growing, poor productivity. Is he right? What does he mean? Um, and is he doing enough, if he is right, to solve that problem? Miata. Yeah, absolutely. So productivity goes to the heart of it, which is basically the amount of output that we get from individual workers. Um, and that's been massively downgraded in the budget. Um, and that's the thing that's basically hit growth. Does the budget do anything to solve it? So in it, the Chancellor announced um, spending on research and development, a good thing. Spending on some sort of high tech areas, again, a good thing. But what we know is that actually the big drag on productivity are the sectors of the economy, the kind of everyday sectors uh, that tend to be low skilled, low wage and employ millions of people. And in the budget, we saw absolutely nothing to help these sectors boost their productivity. So for me, big, big missed opportunity from the Chancellor. And unless he can find an answer to that, we have a problem as a country. I think that's right. But I think it's worth really thinking hard about this. People call it the productivity puzzle. Why have we got kind of less good at making stuff or producing things? Or why is the growth in how good we are at that not improving? And one of the things we think might be going on is this lack of investment in the economy. Partly that's businesses are failing to invest. They were investing pretty small amounts even before the decision to leave the EU. And now some of that uncertainty is affecting them. But also it might be because government aren't investing either. And the level of demand we've got in the economy isn't enough for businesses to think, well, if we do get better, if we're able to produce more per hour, who's going to buy that? Where's that demand for our goods and services going to come from? So I think alongside what Miata talked about and upgrading those kind of low productivity sectors of our economy, we should look at the big picture and look at demand for those products too. Yeah. And I mean, the thing I'd add is, so often when people think about productivity, they think about the sort of shiny things, they think about big investment. But increasingly, actually, there's a school of thought that says productivity depends on the quality of the job that workers have. And so actually, if you invest in people, if you use their skills, if you think about the way in which you organise your workforce, if you empower your workforce, actually, and people are satisfied of their job, all these things boost productivity. And for a really long time, we've just not done enough of that. And actually getting to the place where it's not just about the jobs we create, but it's about the quality of the jobs that people do will be absolutely key to fixing the productivity puzzle. I think that's completely right. And we had some research out earlier this year, actually making a link between the growth in insecure work and the kind of downgrade in poverty in productivity. And it was kind of a correlation. So we saw sectors which had had more insecure jobs created had lower productivity. And in a way, that's kind of really obvious. I think if you don't know when you're going to be working, you don't know how much you're going to be paid, you're not, you don't really think your boss treats you that well, it's quite unlikely that you're going to be doing a better job for the company year on year. So in some ways, the figures are starting to tell us stuff we all kind of intuitively know. So speaking of uncertain things, um, Brexit, that's a thing, um, or it's probably a thing. Um, and it's a very large uncertain thing that Philip Hammond said he's going to put £3 billion uh, towards somehow fixing. What is, what's, what's he said he's going to do? What's that for? 
Well, I think that's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> that's not, a not very good question. Uh, so uh, this is a sort of slush fund to help us prepare for Brexit, apparently. I think the reality is it's a drop in the ocean, because uh, if you think about the amount of things that we need to do if we are going to move out of the single market, things like making sure that all our ports have the right digital infrastructure in order to sort of check customs are really, really expensive and are time-consuming and the number of workers that we're going to need to employ to do them. Um, So this, if you like, is a bit of a sop and a nod. And he did say, you know, if if we need more money, I'll put it aside. But I think this was more about politics than it was about the real life and real economy. What politics how? What do you mean? So, uh, you know, he's got a lot of his backbenchers that don't believe that he really backs Brexit, um, that have been very cross and grumpy with him. And this is his way of saying, look, I'm here to make Brexit work and I'm doing my part and providing a slush fund is my way of showing that I'll do everything I can to make sure we get to a Brexit that works. It's interesting what that slush fund is for, though, because I think he said, I think I'm right in saying he said that's to help government departments prepare. It's not to help businesses and workers across the economy prepare. And quite interesting. Interestingly, the OBR again said we asked the government for more information about what the future is going to look like, about their options and what in order to help us kind of make these forecasts, in order to help us estimate what it might mean for the economy. And they said we didn't receive any information that wasn't already in the public domain. Basically, your guess is as good as ours. So we've basically had to make up what the impact of Brexit might be, taking some kind of quite cautious assumptions, I think, about how it could hit our economy and jobs. And that's why, you know, many MPs have been asking for these Brexit impacts assessments to be published, setting out what Brexit will actually mean for individual sectors of the economy. And I think we really do need to know that before we know, is it £3 billion we're going to need to prepare or are workers and businesses going to need to put a lot more aside? Good morning, it's Budget Week. We used to agonise about the level of public debt. Well, it hasn't gone away. We are up to our eyes in debt. And so the extra spending demanded by so much of the country can only come from one of two places, higher taxes paid by you or yet more debt piled on debt. So there's still a lot of talk uh, before the budget, during the budget, after the budget about the national debt um, and the deficit. So it seems like quite a while now that people have been talking about the debt and the deficit being too high. Are they still too high um, or what? Is it still a thing? What's going on? So it's definitely still a thing. And, you know, the debt and the deficits um, are high. And I think actually the big question in some respects, the whole kind of debt deficit piece has kind of masked the real question, which is, can the economy still absorb it? And can we still grow? And can we still progress? Um, And it's split views. So there's a school of thought that says absolutely not. You've got this as a drain, you've got to you've got to deal with it. So it's all about austerity. There's another school of thought that says, well, actually, we can continue. And the imperative is actually to invest because the way that we basically get ourselves out of this hole is by growing more, because we've invested more. And when we do that and the economy is firing, that's the thing that will bring down the debt and the deficit. So, so, so it's OK to borrow as long as we're using that to borrow to spend on stuff. Exactly, that, that actually yeah. boosts the economy, so, which is why you get this distinction between borrowing for day-to-day versus borrowing for investment, because actually borrowing for investment will lead to a return. So actually in the long run, it makes sense to do it, whereas the day-to-day you've basically got to make 
the book's balance. And I think there's a real difference between the short and the long term here. So George Osborne said, basically, we're going to cut the deficit by 2015. On current forecasts, the deficit isn't going to be cut until 2025. Now, he said the way to cut the deficit is to cut government spending. That will lead to us closing that gap between spending and income. But of course, government spending has an impact on the rest of the economy. Sometimes we call it the multiplier. Sometimes you can just call it kind of increasing demand in the economy through government spending. And what seems to have happened is as government spending has been cut, the rest of the economy hasn't, you know, the private sector hasn't kind of flooded in with new investment. So the economy has slowed down too. That means tax revenues have slowed down. That means the deficit has got wider. And I think, you know, that kind of short term, long term, in the long term, of course, we all want to see the deficit coming down. But it might be the case that we could, as Miatra have said, have lived with a slightly higher deficit for a bit longer. That would have helped us get growth going again. And then the deficit in the longer term or the medium term, hopefully, would have come down much more quickly. So with effect from today, for all first-time buyer purchases up to £300,000, I am abolishing stamp duty altogether. Right, so let's talk about housing. So housing was the stuff on all the front pages uh, a couple of days after the budget. So some said this was the housing budget, and there was a cut for in stamp duty for people buying their first, first house. So that seems like good news if you're buying your first house. Is that the housing crisis fixed then? So, yeah, I mean, housing was the centrepiece of the budget. And actually, on the surface of it, it looks quite good. Stamp duty abolition for first-time buyers over a certain threshold, but also £44 billion worth of investment in housing. Uh, You scratch underneath the surface, though, and the picture looks less good. So if you take the stamp duty, even the Office for Budget Responsibility themselves has said actually the big risk is that all it does is push up prices. And actually, the people that benefit aren't first-time buyers, but people who own their own property and are selling. You look at the 44 billion figure, again, uh, you scratch underneath the surface and what's become clear is actually most of it is money that's already been committed that the chances just repackage. There's only a fraction of it that's actually new money and new investment. And of that, a lot of it is basically these kind of guarantees, loan guarantees to private developers that may or may not take it up or it may or may not be invested in construction. Uh, So actually, the Chancellor hasn't really done anything to invest in housing. And actually, the big piece, because it's not just about the money invest, but it's about reform. So we know that the big problem with the housing crisis is land. And it's the housing market where we've got basically a handful of big developers that dominate the market that don't really want to build above a certain amount. And if we look back in our history, the only times in which we've actually built the number of homes we need is when you've had the public sector, the social sector, so housing associations, community groups building as well. And there was nothing in the budget at all on any of the reforms you needed, nothing on land, nothing on how we shake up the housing market. So in the end, he talks about 300,000. We are a long, long way from getting to 300,000 homes. So he also announced uh, more money for the NHS. £350 million immediately to allow trusts to plan for this winter. And to deal with some of the, let's just just call them problems, (laughs) uh, with the introduction of universal credit. So maybe you could explain a little bit about why he's done that and whether it's a thing to be welcomed. 
So obviously he was under real political pressure um, from, you know, right across the country, let alone his own party to deal with what looks like, you know, it could be a looming winter crisis in the NHS and the very real problems that Universal Credit is going to start causing. Um, I know far more about Universal Credit than I do about the NHS, but the impression I've got from talking to people about the NHS is, you know, it's welcome, but it's not going far enough. We also have a little bit of good news. He talked a little bit about funding an increased pay settlement for NHS staff. We'll obviously wait to see the detail of that, but it is worth noting they were the only public sector workers who actually got that kind of boost. When it comes to universal credit, he put some money aside to solve a problem that we've known about for a long time, since before universal credit was being rolled out. The TUC was talking about it back in 2014. And that's this ridiculous thing that you have to wait for six weeks before you get your first benefit payment. He said he'd shorten that period by seven days. Of course, that is welcome, but it's not a huge amount of money he's put aside for that. So it's 1.5 billion over the course of the parliament. I know that sounds like a lot of money, but when it's rolled out eventually, universal credit is expected to cost around 60 billion a year. So it's big, big money. What he didn't do is solve any of the cuts which are set to leave working families really significantly worse off. Really shocking figure in the back of the Office for Budget Responsibilities kind of big book of everything you want to know about the budget where it says that some young single parents with two kids are set to lose up to £6,000 a year as a result of these changes. That is a pretty horrific figure I think and there was nothing in the budget to actually help people in those situations with those big cuts which are coming down their way. Yeah, and I mean, the, the thing I'd sort of add, add on um, health and the NHS. So our health service is in crisis, um, and that's for a number of reasons, not least the fact that we have an ageing population. And there's a big structural problem, which is essentially we've got a universal service that everyone backs, but we have a population that's putting more demand on it. And at some point, you need to have an honest conversation about the level of investment that goes into it. And, you know, when you have every single sector in the NHS saying we are about to hit the buffers, we're about to hit a crisis and we just can't sustain this and you have a chancellor that basically says shove it, uh, you've got a problem. You know, he got away with a bit of a sop. I think it's going to be tough this winter. And at some point, we need to have a conversation with the public that just says, actually, we just need to invest more, which means maybe a bigger share of our income tax goes into funding this thing that we all desperately care for. And actually, most people use. Um, and, uh, and we're nowhere near that. And the budget went nowhere near that. And I think it is interesting to realise that the Chancellor is still making political choices. You know, he chose to go ahead with very expensive cuts to corporation tax. Um, that was a choice. He kind of made a little thing about it in the budget actually saying I've received representations that we should stop going ahead of these cuts which are costing billions a year. He said okay I'd rather you know carry on with the corporation tax cuts than use that money to reverse the universal credit cuts for example or to put more money into the NHS. So he is still spending you know this was actually a giveaway budget but I think he's making very real choices and you know about where that money might go. So let me see if I let's tie this all up a bit see if I've got this right. Everything that he says he's done you guys have basically said, that's all right, but I'm really, I'm really, I'm really done enough. Is that, is that basically right? Um, and what does it mean if you're, you know, put yourself in the average person's position? What's it going to mean, all of this stuff? I mean, a lot of talk of productivity and growth and mm. these sort of things. But if you're an actual person out there trying to make their way, what's it going to mean? 
So, and I think that's the big test. Um, so, you know, the budgets are these big events, um, but they're an event in a bit of a bubble. And in the, in the end, the test of every budget should be what impact does it have on people's lives? Um, and for me, when I sort of think about the measures, and particularly when you put it against the context, you know, mm. people are struggling and they're being squeezed. And the big question is the chance to do anything about it. And I think the answer is no. I think he completely missed an opportunity. Um, he should have gone into the budget and thought, crikey, it is tough out there and I need to be taking some bold, big steps. And he just fudged it. He dodged it. He didn't do enough. So I think for people out there, the budget just told them that life is going to be tough, but it didn't give them any sense of how they're going to be helped. Faced with those wage forecasts, you're the Chancellor and you're saying, OK, these kind of independent experts are telling me that people are going to be significantly worse off a year. This living standards crisis is not going to end. Surely you'd look at that and think, well, what can I actually do to help people right now? He could have reversed some of those universal credit cuts. He could have said, right, I'm going to go faster on the national living wage. I'm going to get that up to the £9 target that um, the last chancellor that George Osborne promised it would be at by 2020. He chose to look away from that. And he really, I think, did ignore this big cost of living crisis that people are experiencing now. So what, let me push you a bit on that then, Kate. What would you have done? You're, you are spreadsheet, Kate. You're standing <laughs> up in front of the nation, waggling a red box at people. Order, order. I now call the Chancellor of the Exchequer. What, what would you have done? What would your budget have been? In practice, you know, it's all very well saying, hey, you should have done this and that and the other. But what would you actually have done? So the TC sends a budget submission to the Chancellor every year saying, here's a lovely, here's one we wrote earlier, here's what we think you should do. And we basically said there was four priorities for that. First of all, we said our public servants and our public services needed a real boost. So we would have put some money behind ending the public sector pay cap. Public servants have had seven years of real wage cuts. That's just not okay, really. Then we would have said we would have done something about this productivity challenge, and we really thought the economy needed a big boost in investment. He did do a little bit about that yesterday, but we're getting our level of investment up to, I think it's 2.9% of GDP. The OECD average is 3.5%, so we've still got quite a long way to go if we're even to catch up with our competitors and really move the dial on that. We said, as Miata was talking about earlier, we really need to upgrade our workplaces. What's the new model of work which would really make a difference to how people are able to contribute at work, to their productivity, and also how they feel about work? So where are the reforms to stamp up zero-hours contracts, to tackle bogus self-employment, to tackle the kind of abuse of agency workers, which leaves them earning much less a month than regular workers? And then lastly, we said, you've got to do something about living standards now. You've got to reverse those universal credit cuts. And what about going a bit faster on the national living wage so those who are earning the least can have a bit of a boost when everyone's being hit by this big wage squeeze. So I think there was a lot he could have done. You know, it's not, I don't think it's pie in the sky. I think it was achievable. I think there were realistic goals that he could have said, I've kind of noticed what's going on in the country and I want to do something about it. I think he failed that test. So Miata, what would you have, you're standing up, what would you have done? So he was constrained in terms of the amount of cash that he he could have doled out. There was still the scope to borrow to invest, and I don't think he maximised, maxed that out. Um, But in the end, budgets are both about tax and spend, but they're also about reform. And for me, actually, when you think about the scale of the challenge out there, this should have been a budget about reform. So, you know, he should have been looking, housing is a classic example, where actually there should have been reform of land and the housing market. Think about the rental sector. 
actually can think about ways in which actually we create longer tenancies, ways in which we actually try to kind of reduce the upward pressure um, on prices. The energy market where, you know, they're talking about a, a price cap, let's see if it comes in. So there were lots of things that actually he could have started signalling. And then there's this piece about actually the big chunk of the economy that most people are working, how are we upgrading it? What are we doing to kind of ensure that there's innovation? What are we doing to ensure that people are upskilled and that we're using those skills? Um, and that's the sort of space, particularly when you don't have that much money, you should be big on reform. And he just wasn't. So there's one other thing I feel duty bound to ask this because uh, I, I work on planet stuff most of the time. So uh, the, loads of rumours had been circulating about uh, he was going to bring in this great big new tax on horrible, stinky diesel cars. What would you make of that then, Miata? Did he do such a thing? So, I mean, I'm going to try and be positive. The good thing is that he talked about the environment. And actually, if you think about the last year, I don't think any budget, we've talked about the environment. So that's a positive step. Um, and he acknowledges the problem with um, air quality, again, a positive step. So the question is, what do you do about it? And essentially, what we saw was a tax on people buying new diesel cars. So you stop the kind of the flow. But actually, there are loads of people out there that already have diesel cars, and there was nothing for that. So actually, what a lot of people have been calling for, and what would have been the right answer, was particularly given that people were sort of encouraged to buy diesel cars, because they were told that it was quite good for the environment, and now we realise it's not. Oops. A kind of scratch scrapper scheme that gives you a bit of cash so that you can get rid of your diesel car and get another car. That's what he should have done. So he kind of went a little way, but then decided not to. So it's kind of odd to kind of say there's a problem and then you just decide not to act on it. Yeah, it's a bit of a theme coming up. <laughs> there is a bit of a theme. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, I know things. I like knowing <laughs> things. Thank you so much, Kate and Miata, for breaking down the budget for us. Thanks for Thank having you. me. Cheers. Brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. New Economics, New Economics Foundation. Foundation. The New Economics Foundation. And we're brought to you by the New Economic... Economic? Economics Foundation. Right, so before we finish, uh, I've got Miata and I just want to ask her some questions. So, welcome to the New Economics Foundation. Thank You've you. just joined as Big Cheese. Um, <laughs> and we've just been talking about all, everything that's wrong with our economy, right across all of it, by the sound of it. Um, so what what is the New Economics Foundation got to do about that? What do think tanks do about that kind of thing? Clearly, there are big problems out there. And we've talked about lots of them. Um, and like my sense is, you know, I think what's quite interesting at the moment is... Actually, people are kind of fed up. So, you know, they are feeling the squeeze. They're feeling uh, the pressure on the kind of day-to-day -day finances. And I think there's just a sense that, you know, we've had enough of this um, and we want change. Uh, and that's great for think tanks like us because actually change requires you to think about new ideas in which you kind of make things better. Um, and what's really interesting is when you look across, you know, you look across the political spectrum, look across political parties, everyone's saying the economy doesn't work. There's no one that isn't saying the economy doesn't work, but no one really knows how to fix it. And no one knows how to get there. Um, and that's where we come in. So there's a big, big chance for us to say, well, actually, this is the kind of economy that we should be trying to get to. And actually, these are the the sorts of things that we should do both at the local level but also at the national level in order to try and get to that kind of economy and I think that's a big opportunity for places like ours. So what does what does that economy look like then? What, what's our what's the vision? Where are we yeah going? well so that's the big question. Um, I think it's a more equal economy um, where actually you know the kind of big disparity we see between the haves and have not is just not a feature where actually when the economy does well 
everyone benefits uh, and people's living standards grow, uh, where actually we recognise that, you know, we are on this planet and there are just environmental limits and we've got to work within that. So we've got to think about a way in which the economy works, but it works with the environment. And I think a big part of that is a very, very different model of how we create wealth, which is a lot to do with people having a bit more ownership. And so, you know, rather than a world where only a small amount of people have a lot of control of the economy and a lot of ownership, we have where actually control and ownership sits with the majority of people. I think that's the kind of economy that we're trying to get to. So what's uh, what's Neff going to do about it? So that's the big question for us on day eight of my new job. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the thing that I think is really exciting about Neff is that we've done a lot of amazing work working with communities on the ground where we kind of go in, we try and understand the problem as they see them and work with them to kind of drive real change and come up with solutions. And for me, there's something really powerful in that. And I think where I'm quite keen to kind of build on that is to say, well, actually, when we work with this community to come up with this great example about how we can can actually change something and make something better, we then ask ourselves, well, how do we do this across the country? How do we get to the stage where this amazing thing is happening everywhere to the point that we start to change our economy? So I think if NEF can do great work on the ground and then we can do the kind of the big thinking about, well, actually, how do we start? You know, what are the things that we need to do with communities, with local government, regional government, with national government in order to sort of change the nature of the economic system? That's a really powerful place for us to be. And then the final thing that we have that I don't think any other think tank has is that we've got this amazing network of people, of organisers and advocates, um, particularly through NEON, uh, who we work really closely with. And actually, if we can then work with those people to say, look, we've got these amazing ideas about how we change the country, how we change the economy, and get them to start shouting about these ideas, as well as actually working with their own communities to try and embed them, that's a really, really powerful place for a think tank to be. Wonderful stuff. I am all excited. How <laughs> splendid to hear it. Thank you so much, Miata, for coming onto the podcast and answering my silly questions. And thank you to Kate for chatting also about the budget. Fantastic. Thank you for having us. Right, so that's the last episode of the podcast until the new year. But if you've been enjoying the show, please do think about leaving us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcasts app. Other apps are available, but I think that's the important one. Um, it helps boost us up the charts, which helps other people discover the podcast, which is surely a very good thing to be doing. I've been Dave Powell. The weekly economics podcast is produced by Hugh Jordan and James Shield, and we're brought to you by the New Economics Foundation.